Listen on as I read Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 2 once more. We looked at these verses last week and I want to look at them now for a second time. And hear the word of God. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for the richness of your word and the fullness of its teaching. We see 1 John 3. We see John chapter 8. We see Romans chapter 6. All teaching us the same thing. And, And we wonder at times whether we've really gotten it. Well, God, here is another chance for you to work in our lives and to open our lives and to change our hearts. And we pray, oh God, that you would make the preaching of the word an effectual means of grace to your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time, as we began to look at Romans chapter 6, what we looked at was what is called the antinomian problem. Now, the antinomian is someone who says... Instead of shall we, you could just invert the two words, we shall continue in sin that grace may be abound. It is a perversion of the teaching in the prior verse, verse 21 of chapter 5, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through, uh, excuse me, verse 20. The law uh, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. That's 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 what they're distorting. Grace, sin is abounding. Grace is super abounding. Well, the way to get more grace is to commit more sin. Let us continue uh, in sin that grace may abound. Now, that's something people were actually saying. It's something people are saying even today, if not with their mouths and with their lives. Uh, but one of the things that I emphasized last time and I want to emphasize in all of the sermons to come from Romans chapter six is the way in which. The gospel always brings about this accusation. The way in which the freeness and the fullness of the grace of God that is offered to sinners. The fact, uh, and listen carefully every time I say that God justifies the ungodly. He justifies sinners. Every time that is declared, it brings with it this charge and this accusation. And even this question, admittedly, in the, in the ears of God's people. And so it becomes necessary to, uh, to answer the question. And the problem, let me just briefly remind you, the problem of antinomianism, antinomian just means anti-law, arises in three ways. It arises uh, for the man who has a mere theoretical view of justification. I want to read to you something that uh, James Buchanan says in his introduction to his book on justification. I think this captures the thought very well, and it rebukes the man who has a mere theoretical interest in justification, either as uh, a student of the Bible or even a student of history. You lovers of the Reformation, listen to this. He says, The doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ is the old doctrine of the Reformation and the still older doctrine of the Gospel. Yet the vivid apprehension of its meaning and the cordial reception of its truth must be a new thing in the experience of everyone. When he is first enabled to realize and to believe it. What Buchanan is saying uh, there as he introduces his study on justification is that it's one thing to understand the scriptural doctrine as an intellectual concern. 
And it is still another thing to read about Luther and his, his amazing discovery of the gospel, the justification of sinners freely by God's grace. But it is something altogether different to have that realization and discovery in your own experience. And Paul is speaking to those I've said it this way many times. I think it captures it so well. Beginning in chapter 5. Those who are justified and know it. Those for whom uh, the grace of God and justification is an eminently practical and personal matter. It isn't just our interest because we're students of history or students of the Bible. It's because we are creatures made in the image of God. uh, Who have been awakened to the wrath of God and the realities of hell and of sin. And who wish to know above all else, how is it that I as a sinner might be made right in the eyes of God? There isn't anything that is more personal and more practical than that. Well, I would say that is that is the opposite of the theoretical view. And the man for whom justification is a personal concern and a personal discovery, like it was for Paul and like it was for Luther, will never become the antinomian. But there is uh, a second way that antinomian arises, and that is for the legalist in his assessment of Christianity and the gospel. He hears uh, the claims of grace and he says, if you keep preaching this, Paul, you will only encourage people to sin. You will embolden them to sin. That stands as the Roman Catholic charge against the Protestant church and our beliefs concerning justification by faith alone. And it does so for the man thirdly, who wants to sin, the antinomian, the man who hears the gospel and he feels uh, a sudden excitement in his desire to sin. He thinks he's finally found his excuse and his reason. Now, Lest you say I'm painting a caricature, there are some who are really like this, but we must confess that in some measure this is all of us. I don't remember who said it was either Luther or Calvin that all of us have a pope seated on our hearts, on the throne of our hearts. Well, all of us also have uh, at times an antinomian that's seated there as well. In our eagerness to sin, we use grace as the excuse and we seize it as the opportunity. But ultimately... If we see what Paul is saying here, understanding the problem of antinomianism and how it arises, we we see that it arises from a failure to grasp what he's been saying. The definitions of grace, the doctrine of grace as it becomes apparent in a man's life in free justification. Let me offer to you something uh, that I would call the Pauline catechism. Capturing his concerns leading up to this, and especially what he says in chapter 6. Question, does God really justify the ungodly freely by his grace? Again, notice the emphasis, the ungodly. Yes, really. Second question, and how does he do so seeing that they are sinners? Answer, by taking them out of Adam and placing them into Christ, and thus regarding them as standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Question three, but what of their sin? Seeing that men are justified by God in a state of sin, is that the end of the story? Answer, no, 
For by the same means that God brings men out of the condemning power of sin, he also brings them out of the grip of his of his power, namely by their union with Christ. And thus Christ is to them their justification and sanctification and every blessing besides. Another way to put this, Paul's answer to the antinomian, the man who is against law, is that his concern places an undue emphasis on the law. And the reason I say that is because the law is not actually the issue in question, although it will become the issue in question in chapter 7, the Christian in relation to the law. Especially after Paul has just said in chapter 6 that we're not under the law, we're under grace. What then of the law? But that really isn't the issue here. Of course, all of us know what the law says. The antinomian and the legalist and even the sound-minded Christian can all agree that the law says such and so about such and so. What is at issue, rather, is the effect of God's grace upon the believer in his relation to the law. Does the grace of God encourage him to break the law? Does it encourage him to sin? Or does it help him to keep the law? That is the real question. In other words, what do you make of God's grace? The grace of justification, the grace of salvation. What does it bring about in a man's life? What is your answer to that question? Does it bring about a greater and a bolder tendency to sin? Or does it bring about a greater and a bolder tendency to keep the law? And so what is really at stake here is the doctrine and the definition of grace. And what the antinomian does is to look at grace. uh, This is clear in his name. He looks at grace as a kind of anti-law. He's antinomian. But that's how he defines grace. Grace is anti-law. It is opposed to it. And therefore, if I am to live by grace, I must live a life that is opposed to the law. But the reality is that the legalist defines grace in exactly the same way. He defines grace as a kind of anti-law. That's why he hates all this talk of grace and wishes you would stop talking about it and start talking again about the law of God. The question that we have is, or that we should have, is is that how Paul presents presents it? Does he treat and define grace as a kind of anti-law? And for that matter, making it once more a personal concern, You who claim to be saved by grace, is that your testimony? Is that what grace brought about in your life? Did God, by his grace, put you in a position where you actually sin more and not less? What the Apostle Paul does, therefore, is to clear up the confusion the false definitions of grace and the true one. He refutes this notion of the antinomian and of the legalist as strongly as he can. Certainly not. And he tells us positively what the grace of God does to a man once it's entered his life. He views it as a power. Every bit as powerful as sin itself, only more so. A reign which has begun. And the effect of this reign is that it makes a man dead to sin and alive to God. It doesn't bring about a greater tendency to sin, but a greater tendency to obey. Again, I ask you, making justification as much as possible a personal concern, is that your testimony of the grace of God in your life? The grace of God, a reign which has begun, a reign... 
the effect of which is to make a man dead to sin. You have died to sin. That is the fundamental assertion. Before we ever get to, you are alive to God. And you are now living out this newness of life unto righteousness all of your days. He begins with the negative. You have died to sin. And that is the position the Christian has been placed in that he must try to appreciate. He's no longer in a position where sin is his master. Where sin is reigning. Where sin is enslaving. Where sin is dominating. He no longer lives and walks in the ways of sin. Grace has taken him out of that position and placed him in a new position altogether. And so that's the idea we have to try to work out and to appreciate. The way to do that is first to ask this question, and that is, what does it mean to live in sin? In other words, what was the old position of the man before he was a Christian? Notice the language itself. He says, shall we continue in sin? He also says uh, in verse, that's verse 1. In verse 2 he says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Continuing in sin, living in it. In other words, he's, uh, he's imagining that now as a Christian in a new position, there is the possibility that we would think that we would simply continue in the same ways that we had been going before we were Christians. And those were the ways of sin. Shall we remain in the way of sin, continuing to walk therein? That's Paul's question. And do you see how this assumes that the old position uh, encompassed a certain way of life? It acknowledges that before we were Christians, we lived in a certain way. We had a certain outlook about everything. And that the dominant concern in our lives was sin. Always sin. And the question therefore becomes, in light of the grace of God and the newness of life that we enjoy in Jesus Christ, shall we continue now to live as we once did, now that we are Christians? But the question is, what did that look like? What is the life of sin? And here I think uh, I find in Scripture no better definition than what the psalmist says in Psalm 1, 1. Speaking of the blessings of the man who walks in the ways of righteousness. But you notice how he states it in terms of a contrast. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. I don't think there's a better picture that scripture gives of the old life of sin or even the current life of sin for those who are not yet in Christ. Here is a man walking, he says. But not only that, he's also standing and then sitting in the seat of scorners. That's what the sinful man is like. From every possible viewpoint, the dominant concern and course of his life is governed by sin. It doesn't matter what angle you look at it or what posture he assumes. He is always sinning. Sin is his chief desire and delight. It determines all that he does. He's walking, standing, sitting in the ways of sin. The Apostle Paul puts it even more strikingly in other places, such as Titus chapter 3, verse 3, uh, which I won't read. I will read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where he contrasts the old ways and the new ways. 
the way we once walked contrasted with the way we now walked. He says, do, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. This is the way you used to walk. In the worst kinds of sin. And in, in many ways you could say that's all you ever did was sin. But that isn't how you walk anymore. Likewise, John, First John chapter 3, I won't read that either, but we, we looked at that last time. In presenting the contrast between what we once were and what we now are, speaks of sin as, uh, as a con- continual, habitual temper of life. The man who is not born of God, the unredeemed sinner, the person who isn't a Christian is a man who continues in sin. He walks, he sits, he stands in sin. No one born of God sins. That's what he says. But the ones born of the devil. Sin is what he does. It's his practice. It's his habit. His entire frame of being and life. But consider second. The Christian And the new position that we enjoy. Here is what Paul would have us to see in Romans chapter 6. Not that the man who is justified and discovers the grace of God. Suddenly finds in himself a desire and an excuse to sin with new vigor. Uh, The suggestion, Paul says once more, is unthinkable. Certainly not. That is not what, that's not what I experienced when I was saved. I hope it wasn't your experience if it was true grace that entered into your life. What the man rather finds is that once uh, he has been born anew by the power of God and been brought into saving union with Jesus Christ, that his relation to sin has changed altogether. He is in a fundamentally different position than he once was. It is even true to say That such a man has ceased to sin. He's finished with the old position. And he's placed in the new position. Not sin and death. But grace and life. Go back to chapter 5. And you will see that. Now let me be clear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying the Christian never sins. He never commits individual acts of sins. I am saying this. That sin is now something that is out of place. It doesn't belong in his life. And he knows it. And so he laments it and he seeks to mortify it always. He spends a great deal of time in prayer and repentance. You know, this is the kind of thing that our our forefathers would speak of. Spurgeon saying something like, it's true a Christian can sin, but he's never happy in sin. Or Calvin who says sin may live in the Christian, but the Christian can never live in sin. That's precisely what Paul is saying here. He isn't saying, you know, you never sin. Soon in chapter 7, we'll be seeing him saying uh, just that. But he's saying, do you realize how out of place it now is? Do you realize that your whole relationship to sin has now changed? Have you grasped it as a practical concern? Well, there, there is a, a fundamental test we'll get to soon, whether you have. But it's in that same sense that John in 1 John says that he was born of, sin, born of him does not sin. Not that his life is free of sin altogether, for he says in chapter 1 of that same epistle that if any of us say we do not have sin, that we are a liar and we do not walk in the truth. 
Yes, we have sin, but we don't walk in it. We may commit certain individual acts of sins, but it's no longer the way we live. Do you understand the difference? Have you appreciated this fact about yourselves? If you are a Christian. The Apostle Paul is saying. By his question. He's implying. You who are saved by grace. Do not continue in sin. Nor live in it. That's the answer to his two questions. Shall we continue in it? Shall we continue to live in it? No. Is the answer. In fact. It's stronger than no. He's saying the idea itself. The suggestion. Itself. Is sinful. It's monstrous. It's blasphemous. We who are Christian people, who have been born again by the grace of God and set out now to follow Jesus Christ all the way into the end, we do not sin, but we forsake it utterly. That is what it is to be a Christian, to forsake sin. We don't continue in sin. I I want to be clearer. Yes, we still sin as particular acts, but we don't continue with it. We don't abide in it. We don't live in it. We forsake it. That's what repentance is. And that is the substance of the Christian life. The new position that we, have, we now have with respect to sin as a result of grace. We have been born anew and we are venturing out on a new course altogether. And we realize, as John says, that Jesus Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil, which include all of his accusations and, 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 and the guilt that we now, uh, we now possess as a result of that. Although I think I'd have to say that's the work of the law, isn't it? But one of the great works of the devil is the way that he is able through his temptations to ensnare and to entangle us in sin. But Jesus Christ came into the world to set us free from his his power and his entanglements. And what we have to do as Christian people is to stop selling Jesus short in our lives. To stop treating Satan as though he had a power of us that he doesn't now have. To realize, as the Apostle Paul says, that the gospel is a power in a man's life. It's the power of God to save. That's why he wasn't ashamed of it. And do you know anything of this power? This power to free you from its, the, condemn, the condemnation of the law as a result of sin. But also the enslavement of sin. Well, to really understand this, as a third point, we have to go back to the Adam-Christ comparison. Uh, Chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, which stand at the background. And remember that Paul is answering uh, objections and concerns that that teaching might bring about. And what he's really saying uh, to these Christian people is, have you grasped the doctrine? Do you know the difference between being in Adam and being in Christ? Do you realize that both positions must be seen comprehensively as a total position, not partial? In other words, you don't get out of Adam and into Christ, but still carry some of Adam along with you. No, if you're in Christ, you're in Christ altogether. What does it mean to be an Adam? Well, the big thing, and this is clear from the teaching, the big uh, dominant fact of, the, of Adam himself and those who are in Adam is sin. Now, he speaks of death. He speaks of condemnation. He speaks of many things, the imputation of sin to others. But, but all of those are the consequences of sin. The big, uh, the big fact of Adam's life, which becomes the dominant fact of all of those who are in Adam, is sin itself. And now we see, and the, t- the effect of that teaching is how that single sin affected us all. It brought us all 
It brought death to all. It brought condemnation to all. And it had the effect that we now all stand in the position of sinners. Verse 19. Let's see. I'm still in Corinthians. Verse 19, he says, It's by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. They were placed now in the position of sinners. But appreciate seeing that as those, uh, the position of those who are in Christ, what it, uh, in Adam rather, what it means to be in Christ. And what is uh, the point that Paul is making? Well, there's many things that we could say. But here is the first thing you have to appreciate. And if you haven't appreciated it, well, then I'm not surprised that you're still confused, that you still think that you're a slave to sin as a Christian person. The first assertion that we must grasp is that we're finished with Adam. To be in Christ is to be finished with Adam. Before you even begin to work that idea out, can you just realize that? Grace has now begun to reign, Paul says. Grace in contrast to sin. And grace is stronger than sin. And the effect of grace is that it ends the reign of sin in a man's life. It does more, but that's the first thing. Verse 21. As sin reigned in death through Adam. He doesn't say through Adam, but that's implied. Even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin isn't reigning anymore because grace has begun to reign. Yes, but what does it mean for grace to reign? It means, as our fourth point, that we are dead to sin. Dead to sin. This is the idea we must be sure to grasp. That to be in Christ and out of Adam is to be dead to sin. Which means dead to its reign, dead to its enslaving power. It's in this sense that Jesus says, if everyone who sins is a slave to sin, that's the man in Adam. But if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Free from what? Well, obviously free from the enslavement he just spoke of. When Paul says that he says, we who died to sin, he is speaking of a radical breach. He's speaking of a decisive end to the power of sin in the life of the believer. Sin viewed as a man's former master is now dead. And he cannot do to him what he once did. I would also note this phrase, he who died to sin, is in the aorist tense, which in the Greek is the past tense. In other words, he's saying that this is a decisive event that occurred in the past. He is not setting this forth as a goal. He's not saying this is something you need to do. Or this is something that God is going to do in your life at some point later on. He's saying this is something that's already happened. The power of sin has been slain. Once grace has begun to reign. And and thus this is something that is universally true. Of all believers. Not of some. Not of the best. But of all. For everyone who is in Christ is out of Adam. And the reign of sin has ended. Now how did that happen? How is it that sin viewed as a foe was slain? Well... That is something that Paul is going to answer later. And we'll have many, uh, many sermons, I think, to entertain that thought. But for now, may I simply notice that it was Christ who did it. Not you, not me, not Adam, not anyone, not even Paul. It was Jesus Christ who did it. So that I, as a believer, ought to say this is not my work. This is not to be my accomplishment. 
It isn't something I get credit for at all. My death to sin. This is his accomplishment. It's something that he's done for me by his death. Well, there's your answer, by the way. His death on the cross and my share in it by virtue of my union with him. For me to die with Christ on the cross means that I died there with him to sin. Not only its condemning power, but its enslaving power. And so it's important that we see that this is something that's already happened because he has done it. Not as a goal that I must do. And we must, all of us, appreciate the life-changing relevance of this fact. There is, no, uh, there is no matter of greater concern to the Christian, especially uh, as I think of my own cases of pastoral counseling. There is no doctrine which has greater revel- re- relevance to the believer in his relation to his sin and his desire for repentance, true repentance than this. That the believer who is in Christ is now dead to sin. And if only I could convince you of that. And if only you would believe that. And if only you would begin to live like it were really true. Paul is saying that the Christian is someone who now lives in a new realm. He lives in a new kingdom. He is a new creation. Have we appreciated this fact about ourselves? John Murray The person who has died to sin no longer lives and acts in the sphere or realm of sin. There is a kingdom of sin. The person who has died to sin no longer lives there. It's no more the world of his thought, affection, will, life, and action. His wellsprings are now in the kingdom, which is totally antithetical, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You no longer live, he says, in the kingdom of darkness. Christ has snatched you out of its power, and he's placed you in a new position and a new kingdom. The problem, as I close, and as a fifth point, is that so often we Christians do not live as though this were true. And this is clear from the admonitions which come later, and even from the teaching itself, that it is possible to get as far as we are through five chapters of Romans and still not be clear about this fact, which tells me it is clear to go a very long way in the Christian life and yet still fail to realize This fact about myself, that I am dead to sin, who am in Christ. And so what does that tell us? It tells us that this is something that we as Christian people not only need to be clear about, but we need to be reminded about it often. Not just from the pulpit, but we need to remind ourselves. We need our brothers to admonish and exhort us along these lines. We we need to be admonished especially, as Paul says, to reckon what is true of ourselves. Verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. He's not saying die to sin. He's saying realize that you already are. Do you understand the difference? Reckon yourself to be dead to sin because you're in Christ. And then begin to live with this in mind. Work out the doctrine in its practical manifestations. Verses 12 and 13. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness and so on. And so I'm saying that there are Christian people who continue to live as though this were not true. As though it were possible, I am saying, to be a Christian and and yet not dead to sin. They live as though slavery to sin were the norm when Christ has set them free. So often we reveal this by our words. You say to me, I struggle to stop sinning. I tried to stop, but I can't. As though sin were still your master and you its victim. 
as though it exercised an influence over you that you could not control. Beloved, I say to you, in the name of Jesus Christ, that is just to, to deny his work on your behalf. And it is, it is to fail, as Buchanan said, to discover for yourself personally what his death means for you. Not only that you might be justified freely by his grace, but that you might be set free. And if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. May I put it as strongly as the Apostle Paul. You who say, I struggle to stop, I can't. Certainly not. You ought to stop saying it, to to, to stop thinking it. I ask you, when will you begin to live this Christian life to the full? Do you realize the immense resources at your disposal? Do you really know Christ, his power, his grace? Do you know what it is to be a Christian? Sometimes I find that we Christians treat the power of sin as greater than the power of grace. And is there anything more tragic than that? That that should be our testimony. Here is where our faith is put to the test. It's in the hour of temptation. And it's in that moment that you will find what you really, what you really think of Christ and what you really think of his grace and whether you really know him. Do you know him as a sympathetic friend, as your great high priest in heaven? Do you know what it is to receive grace to help in time of need? That is to say, in the hour of temptation. Or are you still viewing Satan as greater than him? And so I say our faith is put to the test in the hour of temptation. When Satan comes to us and suggests, here is a temptation you cannot resist. It's too great for you. But I'm telling you, once again, if you are a Christian... If you are united uh, savingly to Jesus Christ, if his grace has begun to reign in, in your life, you can resist it. And there is a reason that the Bible tells us Satan will flee when you do. At The very moment you resist him, he will run like a coward, like a man who is afraid. It's because you are a Christian and there is nothing Satan fears more than the man who is a Christian and who knows it and who lives like it and who stands against temptation. I am dead to sin. Christ has set me free. And do you know what Luther used to say in the hour of temptation? He would simply say to Satan, I am a Christian. And so my closing plea to you all is to realize what it means to be a Christian saved by grace as an eminently practical concern, not just in the hour of worship, but in the hour of temptation. And there I say again, you will find out what you really think of Jesus Christ and whether you know him. Start to live like it. Start to live uh, like grace is reigning and no longer like sin is reigning. Amen. And by God's grace, many sermons to come on this subject. Let us come to the table. I'll I'll read the words from uh, Mark. Mark chapter 14. Let's see. Uh, 
Uh, verse 22. There we are. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, the thing uh, that I want to stress uh, as ever, but certainly in light of Romans chapter six about the Lord's Supper is the fact that it is a means of grace. That is a means by which God's grace uh, is strengthened in us and becomes apparent to us. Jesus is connecting his grace with his work, his body and death, and especially with his death on the cross. And it was there uh, that we will see in sermons to come that Jesus died to sin. Uh, Because sin is what sent him there. But when he died, he died to sin once for all. And the most amazing thing, uh, and I can't wait to tell you more about it, is that we died there with him. We who have faith with him. We died to sin's power with Jesus Christ. And do you know what I'm describing? I'm describing grace. Grace, uh, let us be clear about it. This is another uh, enduring conflict between Protestants and Catholics. Grace is a power. It is a reign. Are we clear about that? Do we can we even define it? I know we sometimes call it unmerited or demerited favor. And so grace can be a disposition, but it's also a power. It's the power of God to save. And that salvation is something that is comprehensive. It is something that encompasses all of life and it takes us into the very gates of heaven. And even then we will see the full reign of grace. But here is a means of grace to weary pilgrims who are tired and weary, uh, who are beaten up and, uh, And discouraged, ready to give up the fight, Jesus says, keep fighting. Keep on believing on me. Keep on resting in my work and my grace offered to you. You see, he doesn't just die on the cross and then go to heaven. But he wants to keep blessing you every week and every day. And and, and don't you see his concern for you in the administration of the Lord's Supper? Uh, With those words, I invite all, uh, all who believe such to come unto Christ, but also, as I'm required in this book, to warn you as well, to fence the table from behind. We had some interesting discussions about that at General Assembly. How do you fence the table? Well, I was always taught you fence it from behind the table. In other words, we're not withholding the cup from people, but we're just with Paul. We're warning them that if you take it in an unworthy manner, he's looking not at your life, but the way you're taking the cup and the bread. Are you taking it in faith? Are you looking to Christ as your savior or are you despising the very elements themselves and their outward weakness? That's to take it in an unworthy manner. Are you coming into this place with a life full of sin, denying the power of the gospel in your lives? That's another way to irreverently take it in an unworthy manner. But it, it has to do with the way you take it. If you take it in an unworthy manner, then you really ought to be careful. And I, and I fear I haven't stressed this enough uh, because the man who does that, Paul says, is eating and drinking judgment unto himself. Uh, that, that is a fearful prospect. I, I, that should not keep the true penitent, the true Christian away. But that should certainly warn off the Judas who is in our midst, if any should be. Uh, but with those words of in, invitation and fencing, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we thank and praise you for the gift of your son. And Jesus, we thank you for the way in which you, you promise to bless these means of grace, these ordinances, Uh, as they are administered in your name. And we ask you that you might meet with the penitent Christian in in this, uh, well, this is the hour of worship, but may we be strengthened for the hour of temptation. 
May we find grace to help us in all of the needs that we will find and that we will face in the week to come. And may we rise up in faith like true Christians and defy Satan as one who is now made stronger than he. Uh, not, not in ourselves, Lord. We, we ever acknowledge that our strength comes from you. E- even in our willingness to eat this little piece of bread and drink this little cup of wine. How, hum- how much we humble ourselves under your power, our Lord, and acknowledge that if you do not make us strong, we will ever be weak. But if you will make us strong, we will be strong indeed. And may we know it through Christ your Son. Amen.